Today's episode on Police Pie Talk is sponsored by Crossing Color Lines. Crossing Color Lines is an organization established to speak directly to the issues of race, culture, and ethnicity in the world today. Crossing Color Lines offers resources, tools, and guidance to help anyone along their journey towards racial healing. For more information on Crossing Color Lines, go to crossingcolorlines.org. Here we go, here we go. Welcome to Police Pod Talk. Whoop, whoop, it's the police. Don't look in your rearview mirror. This podcast covers the latest police news along with hitting the hot topics you've been talking about all week. I'm your host, Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Everyone's pushing for the police to be trained in different ways. Train them in this. They need to be trained to talk this way. They need to de-escalate this. And then they always say, well, why are you so concerned about the police being trained? Why not train the people how to respond to police? How should they act when the police come around? The do's and don'ts. Okay? And I know that's been the big thing. And Uh that's why you keep seeing, well, blue lives matter. And then, hey, don't worry about any us. You should be worrying about your behavior. I mean, what do you say to people when they say that? Um, I think, one, it depends on who's saying that. Because I'm going to always bring it back to this, and this is always how I'll close things out, is I'm going to bring it back to what do you have control over. And so if you're saying that and you're a police officer, that may be a valid point, and I know you may feel strongly about that. But right now, do you have control to fix that? No, but you have control to fix how you police. So address the things that are in your realm and in your, in your space that you can reach and address what you do on a daily basis. If it's a person who is from, you know, a civilian that's in a non-minority community, if it's a white person saying that, I would ask you, what do you want to do to help with the situation? And again, that's a really easy perspective to take when you're not the one that's at risk of being, you know, in these in- incidents. Mm-hmm. You are not an officer at, in, in these scenarios and you're not a minority in the scenario. So you really, that's an armchair quarterback comment that really... I, I don't hold a lot of value to what you have to say about that and that and that perspective because you, you clearly have not put yourself in that situation. You've never had to live that. So that I think is invalid. Um, and I think if in fact there are black people saying the same thing, then I would say, okay, so what are you doing in your black community to mentor young people? What are you doing mm-hmm. in your community to assist people? What are you doing to help address that then? Mm-hmm. I think that that's, I think it's, there's certain dog whistle or certain just phrases and, and language that people like to use and, and sentences and statements that people have, have clutched onto. But I think really is, at, at the end of the day, it's grasping for immunity from being responsible to do anything in the situation. Now, you said something, and I want to make sure we both understand it. You said that the DNA, the trauma DNA is in people of color because it's been passed down to things they've seen or maybe happened to their grandparents and it got passed down. You yeah. also said that they have that same DNA trauma in a police officer who has seen a lot of the things, bad things happen. So there's yes, that that's true also, right? Yes. Okay. So now you got two people <laughs> who yeah. are dealing with trauma, Tra- traumatic history, right? Yeah. And they're running into each other one night or one day on the street. Mm-hmm. Now we're trying to train the police officer. And again, you already said, what are we doing in the community to help train these young men and women? of color who maybe have problems with the police. Right. So there's a balance on both ends. Both sides have to be doing a lot of work in their community, a lot of work on their police departments, right? 
I agree. Okay. No, I agree. Okay. But I, I, Right, well, go ahead. <laughs> I, mean, I, <laughs> I feel like there's I, another point here. I'm, I'm waiting for the other point. <laughs> no, I just wanted to throw that out because I don't want it to sound like, and I know people are listening, are going to be listening, to yeah. hear it sound like, well, it's all the police's fault that this no. is happening. Yeah. So yeah. can you kind of clear that up a little bit? Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I fully agree with that. And, I, and it's not that it's all the police's fault, but I think that when you look at the balance of power, I don't care what anybody says. I, I think you look at a situation and I know there's, you know, people can say, well, there's criminals and there's thugs and there's people with guns and there's this, that, and the other thing. And I, I get that. And I know that it's risky when a, when there's a traffic stop and an officer has to approach a car and they have no idea what's going on in that vehicle. I get that. But I think on the whole, when you look at the balance of power in this macro structure called the criminal justice system, when you look at the way laws are written, when you look at what police are trained to do, what you look at what pe- police are empowered to do, and then you look at the people in this situation, there's an imbalance of power. And when it comes to a scenario when there's a relationship where there's an imbalance of power, I think it's a natural re- response. And I think it's a logical approach to start with those that are in power. Can they not make the first move on addressing some of these things? I agree that there are responsibilities in the, in the community. And I think that, again, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, systemic racism is a, it's a holistic issue. So it's not just about interactions with the police. It's about everything. It's about an education. It's about you know, even in churches and all kinds of things. And so there's got to be a holistic approach to addressing the, the the deficiencies in our minority communities. And we need to, you know, spend resource and time and energy educating and elevating and, and helping address. I mean, like, like, here's one of the big things I really think, as you pointed out, that there's trauma on both sides. I think it's important to do trauma care on both sides. I think it's really important to shift the culture and police departments about dealing with mental health and dealing with trauma. And like the idea that like, really, you, you know, it's made available, but you're really not supposed to talk about it. You're really not supposed to do it. And you're kind of weak if you lean on it, you know, and likewise, you know, the amount of trauma care happening and, you know, family counseling and things that could happen in minority communities. I think that is part of what we need to do is begin to love people well and begin to help people heal from their brokenness. I think that even with, the, uh, with police, one of the things I've thought about, and I know these are, these are just my ideas I'm throwing out there and not stuff that I'm like pushing forward or like trying to have um, policies change, but just thinking things, looking at things differently and thinking through, you know, the system and looking at it from a different perspective and going, what could we do differently? One of the thoughts is, you know, oftentimes when there's a, you know, there's a police action shooting or that officer gets put on leave, sometimes it's paid leave, sometimes it's unpaid leave. Well, perhaps, you know, there, and there's a lot of scenarios, it doesn't mean that the officer was always in the wrong, but I'm just saying, you're already going to have to put them on paid leave. Well, maybe instead of making a paid leave after an incident, maybe do better monitoring of where that person is and how they're doing and let them take a sabbatical. It's still the same amount of pay you're gonna still do. He's gonna be off for the same amount of time, but let's do it in a preemptive way so before it gets to that point. Because I think what officers have to take in, I think so much of what they have to take in, they don't even realize how much is building up. And so there may be a way to do um, you know, better care of even giving them a break and you know, giving them a respite. I think that would help with mental health. And I think just in general, um, requiring you know, better collaboration with mental health services not only just for the officers, but also in some of these situations that maybe don't need the full force of the law involved, but you need, you know, maybe just some, and sometimes you don't know that and can't mm-hmm. ascertain that until you get there. Yeah. Um, and I get that. But if they're, you know, if you're an officer and you get there and you ascertain, okay, you know what, this really isn't that severe. It's not that big a deal. You know, where there's not a dangerous situation. It's not a major you know, criminal situation. It's more of a civil kind of just, we need just somebody to help sort things out. Maybe bring in some other, you know, and I don't know, maybe it's a different tier of, of police mm-hmm. force, you know, maybe it's a different, you know, but just a different, you know, role, somebody who's prepared to handle that so that you're not standing there dealing with, you know, somebody's domestic 
argument and that's really not violent it's not dangerous it's just people not getting along and being really loud and disturbing the neighborhood yeah. while you know there's another crime in progress right um, so i think there's some of those kinds of just different approaches to that i think we could look at yeah the thing about that is it can start out as just a simple argument that's and true. then all of a sudden it turns into something violent real fast so you never know what it is you're going to get and i mean you're yeah. being trained that way also that hey you don't know when this thing may break off or what may tip it the wrong way but it's funny you're mentioning about this critical incident management type thing. Uh, yeah. When an officer been involved in a shooting or has seen something traumatic. Funny thing is, uh, Monday, July 13th, Monday, July 13th, I have a podcast coming on then when I talk to a former uh, police officer uh, named Matt Lewis. He uh -huh. works, he does that exact same thing. When officers, be it medics, be it dispatchers, yeah. have been involved in anything that's traumatic like that, they offer this to them that they can come talk, talk it out. But uh, his podcast is coming on on the 13th of uh, July, Monday, July 13th. Wow. And yeah. uh, it's really good. It's funny. You're talking about the exact same thing that is actually out there. Yeah. It's not forced yeah. on anybody, but you no. really probably need to go get it to get it done to work on your own mental side. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. And I think, you know, and again, a lot of this, I think a lot of this is culture. It's about like, it's kind of a, a crazy analogy, I suppose, but like even, um, you know, smoking at one point in time was just everywhere. Everybody smoked. It was cute. Everybody, there was advertisements for it, all these kinds of things. And obviously there was empirical evidence that it was unhealthy and wasn't good for the general public. And so now it's pretty much illegal to smoke anywhere in the public. It's just not socially it's just not part of the social norm anymore. And I think a lot of this is, you know, there may be some tools that could be used well, and there's some, some tools that probably need to be let go of. But the idea is if you shift the culture and you shift the idea from going like, yeah, well, that guy went and got his head checked, you know, to no, like he's dealing with trauma and he's going to get himself taken care of. Like right. even just the language of like, w which one was he doing? You know, it's the same thing. He's going to see some services, but it's just the, the attitude and that approach. And, you know, and the other thing is, you know, being mindful of who you hire and, and, and where they are. I mean, even hiring ex-military, when you have ex-military guys, I'm not saying it's wrong to hire ex-military, but bear in mind, you got to understand their their history of service. And if they may be coming in, you know, with some right. trauma that's completely unrelated and separate, but there could be triggers in the, you know, execution of their duties that mm -hmm. causes them to, you know, go into a space that they didn't want to be in, you know, and go, right. go into. So I think, I think there's a lot of focus could be a lot more on the mental health of the officers and support and care on that end of it. And I also think too, and I don't know, I haven't really looked into a lot of it, but I think bridging the gap between the police and communities as far as even just interactions and unofficial capacities as far as, you know, whether it's being involved in community outreaches and community activities, maybe making faith-based partnerships where maybe they work alongside churches at certain events or church people can come along and help serve the police or just building a relationship, just doing things that are not in the, in the capacity of, you know, a, a heightened, you know, emotional or, mm. you know, intense trauma state just beginning to bridge that. I mean, I think there's a reason why people got really excited for a long time. And it kind of became a trend to see all these video clips of officers stopping to play basketball with kids. Right. Like there are officers out there that want to connect with community. There are officers out there that get that and understand that. And I think the community wants to see that they want to see them like not just in the middle of a crisis. They want to see them, you know, in a scenario where it's just, you know, socially and that like I'm saying the police have to go start hanging out in neighborhoods where they, police so much but you know maybe they should maybe they should be around maybe they should be available maybe they should get to know some of these people I, I can't tell you how many times for example um my dad was a principal of uh, a high school um in my hometown and it was definitely it was the urban school there were the same issues that most urban schools face 
during a time when there was a lot of issues with gangs across America, there was just a lot of heightened activity and issues. And he had these officers that worked in his building, these uh, school resource officers. And I think there's about four of them. And there were two that were black and two that were white. They had an office and the administrative suite of offices there. But these guys were out and about. And I get this is a school, but I feel like a school can be a microcosm of society. And so this school, you literally had multiple nations represented at the school. It just happened to be a very international school. Lots of kids speaking different languages and different cultures and a lot of people new to the country at this school. These guys intentionally, and part of it was, you know, at the, you know, based on the leadership of my dad being the principal, but and kind of what he expected, the standard he expected, but also because of the way these guys operated, these officers were around all the time and they didn't just hole up in their office until they got a call to come choke a kid out. You know what I mean? Which I know it's kind of, <laughs> but they would like, they were there. They were hanging out and milling around in the hallways. They were at the ball games. They would hang around at ball practices. They were talking to people. They were, you know, of course they were city officers as well. So you'd see them, but where they worked, they pretty much worked around near the school. And so you might see them out when you're going to get gas and they're, you know, they're picking up a beverage or they're, you know, and so they were just a part of the community and the culture of that school. And so what ended up developing in, in that situation, these guys were amazing, is number one, they worked together as, as a team. They were great. Um, but number two, they understood and knew the kids. They knew the staff. They knew the administration. And they kind of knew what was expected. But it got to the point where there was such rapport built between the officers and the administrators, specifically the administrators that were over like discipline, that the kids would come in and tell the officers about things that were getting ready to go down, drug deals or hits that were out on kids, gang-related activity. Like, somebody's mm-hmm. going to try and come by the school today, you know? Like, these kids had such a relationship and such a confidence and trust in the officers that they would go in and they would share stuff with the administration or with the officers and say, I need you to know this information. And they also had the kind of trust they knew that the officers and the administration were going to do right by them, and they were not going to throw them under the bus. They were not going to put them at risk. They were going to handle it with care and class and confidentiality. There were numerous scenarios and numerous stories of them being able to preemptively intervene and deal with stuff. Honestly, they would take care of things that the rest of school, most kids had no idea ever happened or Mm -hmm. ever occurred. I think that is a picture of how you integrate and you merge, you know, civil spaces and civil entities with policing. I think it's a partnership. I think another thing that something my dad always did well is he had obviously a variety of schools that he worked at. And so the different schools, when he was in charge, the first thing he always did is he would reach out to the police department there and get to know them, connect with them, let them know who he was, and find out who are the officers in our area, who are, who's assigned to our space, get to know those guys, exchange contact information, and say, listen, if there's something I can help you with. Let me know. I want to help you guys out. Mm-hmm. Vice versa, can I reach out to you if I've got something coming up? And so they were seen in a capacity that was not just in a combative environment. It was There was a variety of reasons for them to be interacting with kids that they were seeing. Right. So that built a trust, and you know, to be honest with you, most of the interactions there, of course, you're going to have people get out of pocket. And you're going to have people come unglued for one reason or another. And obviously, there's going to be there, there are a variety of justifiable arrests and things that need to occur. But it was never in a way that was traumatizing or they just, and again, partly I have to attribute to probably to my father's leadership, but like it was never disruptive to the day. Like they would just swoop in, handle it, boom, gone, move on. Like there was not this whole big, long, drawn out ordeal. You know, it just was, it was just so well done. Um, I think that is, I think that all speaks to these officers that worked at that school at that time and how they collaborated well with each other and with the community. Let me ask you this question because I saw it on the news last night where they're getting back to community policing, where they're having the officers get out, walk a beat, know the neighbors and things like that. But here was the one question. Sure. Do you think it makes a difference if the officer is 
a black officer in a black community and a white officer in a white community? Does that make a difference at all? Um, I think to some people it would. I think initially the comfort level may be um, related to, you know, somebody who looks like me representing me uh, being my officer. But I think, again, it comes back to how you choose to execute your duties. And I think there's abilities for people to cross culturally and cross ethnicities to connect. There's so many commonalities among human beings that there are ways for people to connect. And I think there are literally neighborhoods that are just waiting and hoping for somebody to come and show some support here. Because here's the thing, and this is, you know, part of the problem. Officers typically are not seen. They're not, they don't exist. They're not there in certain neighborhoods, specifically minority neighborhoods, unless there's a crisis. And so when I see you, I always equate crisis with you that I, either somebody around me is in crisis or somebody's in danger. And that can be dismantled, I think, if we are interacting with officers, regardless of their race, under circumstances that are not crisis related. And so you can't do that if they're not there unless it's in the middle of, you know, a problem. Right. And so I think, again, I think, I think community policing does matter. And I, I think it can be overcome. Now, is it going to be a challenge? It, will it be an uphill battle for, say, a white officer to be, you know, plotted into a predominantly black neighborhood? Yeah, they're probably going to have an uphill battle. But I think it can be, I think they can win people over a lot more quickly than people assume. I, I think that's part of the issue, too, is that sometimes I think people paint um, black communities with a pretty broad brush and just assume every person that lives in a, in a predominantly black neighborhood is angry, hates the police and wants to take one out if they have a shot. I don't think that's the case. I think that there is, it's just a very um, trepidatious relationship right now. And somebody has to make the first move. And I think, I, you know, I, I perceive that there are probably some really fantastic people, probably some senior individuals in these neighborhoods. They're just waiting and hoping to reach out and they would love to just love on an officer mm -hmm. and, you know, offer him some lemonade cookies. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. I know that sounds real like Norman Rockwell, but I really do think that there are, there the, the great capacity for people to love and for people to, to connect and to heal, I think it's underestimated. I think especially when you see the coverage in the news, they draw these sharp lines. They draw these sharp protests and counter protest lines or these, you know, police and non-police lines. And I don't think it has to be that rigid. And I don't think, honestly, I don't even think officers want it to be that rigid. I think, you know, when I look at some of these, some of the videos and some of the footage of some of the things that are happening during these protests, and I think about these individual officers and I think about what they're being asked to do, but what they're internally processing as well and what they may actually feel like they would right. prefer to do. Right. But because of the situation and protocols and whatever the scenario may be, they're playing in the middle of a situation that maybe as a person and personally, they wouldn't approach it, you know, approach it that way. And so, yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this. Black Lives Matter. They're marching. They're protesting. Mm -hmm. They're holding up signs. They're doing all those things. Who is organizing <laughs> one meeting to say, look, we've marched, we've done our thing. Here's what our demands are. Or here's what we would like to see change to make this better. Is there someone doing that? Or is every place? Uh, okay, I think I kind of <laughs> hear the answer. But answer it anyway. <laughs> I stomped Angel before she could answer that question. Tune into part four and hear Angel's answer right here on Police Pod Talk. Today's episode on Police Pod Talk is sponsored by Crossing Color Lines. Crossing Color Lines is an organization established to speak directly to the issues of race, culture, and ethnicity in the world today. Crossing Color Lines offers resources, tools, and guidance to help anyone along their journey towards racial healing. For more information on Crossing Color Lines, 
go to crossingcolorlines.org. 